And welcome back to another episode of Space in 60. We have 60, 60, 60, 60. 60. (laughs) (laughs) We've got the usual crew on board. Chad Baker. Hello. And Andrew. Andrew. Palipchuk. You know, we've done too many recordings of Space in 60 when we start getting really silly. Today got pretty silly. Today is pretty silly. You guys are cracking me up. We got a lot. Sorry, I wish we could have recorded everything off air that we had off air. But yeah, these guys are, are cracking me up today. And I'm actually feeling really bad for our next guest that's going to have to endure us today. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully she can tolerate us. She is amazing. And I can't wait for you all to meet our next guest. So our next guest is the owner and founder of Astrolytical. She worked as a founder and executive director of the Georgia Space Alliance, was a manager at Swiss Space Systems, was also a scientific research analyst for the International Space Station U.S. National Laboratory, and she's an author, and she's a mom. I can't wait for you to meet Laura Forzik. Laura, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for inviting me. So where are you calling in from, Laura? I am in the suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. All right. Not a bad place to be. Oh, it is hot, hot, hot right now. They call it hot Atlanta for a reason. (laughs) I went to Clemson, so I spent a good amount of time down there in Atlanta on weekends and fun trips. So I do love it, but it is hot and humid. That is for sure. Yeah, it's not quite hot and humid in, uh, in Calgary yet, is it, Andrew? Ah, well, some, summer is here in full swing. We've got thunderstorms happening like every other day. So yeah, it's getting there. It's getting there. Yeah, I grew up in Pennsylvania, so I moved down south for a reason. I actually love it being warm and I don't want to be cold ever. <laughs> but yeah, the air conditioning is a blessing for sure. <laughs> mm, there you go. If you turn up the air conditioning just enough, it'll feel like Canada. <laughs> it's quite a bit. So Laura, like I said, it's great to have you on the show. I've actually been a follower of yours on LinkedIn for quite a while. And we were really inspired when we heard that you wanted to come on the show. And I can't figure out why in the world you would want to be on a show with three guys like us, but we'd love to hear what brought you to Space in 60. Well, your team reached out for an invitation and I'm really glad because I like, like we were saying before I started recording here, I'm hooked on podcasts. There are over a hundred space related podcasts out there and I try to listen to every single one of them with moderate success. And so whenever I get a chance to have a conversation with hosts like you, I jump on it. Well, so I'm assuming we're number one on your list. Am I right? Absolutely. Out of 100? (laughs) Out of 100? (laughs) Yeah, I think uh, we've all been very fortunate that we've had such great guests on our show. And I've listened to a couple of podcasts where you were on, but we're really anxious to hear what brought you into the space industry. And I saw you have a book out. I mean, we just love to hear what all you're up to these days. 
Ah, so my love of space goes back quite a while where I decided in third grade, I wanted to be an astronaut and I never lost that. Wow. So indeed, my my book is about how to become an astronaut. <laughs> and so that's been inspiring me the whole time, but also the, the beauty of the cosmos. So I went into astrophysics as my bachelor's degree and my master's. And that's because I wanted to understand all the gorgeous phenomena out there in the universe and how it all came to be and how we came to be. I switched over to planetary science for my PhD work and wanted to understand like our planetary system and how we can benefit Earth. And in fact, my first job was at CASIS, ISS National Lab, understanding how we can use space, specifically the ISS, to benefit life on Earth. And so it all flows together for me. It's all about creating a better future for humanity. So that young, can you remember what actually brought you into like space and getting excited about it? And Yeah. So I read something in school, must have been a book about the Apollo program. And then I wrote a short story that I still have about going to the moon and what I would bring with me. And, you know, as a kid, it's like, you know, a sandbox, I would bring a shovel (laughs) and, you know, like, like, I didn't really know, but that's what inspired me. I wanted to go to the moon and I still do. Honestly, I'm happy to volunteer for the Artemis program. And they're going to send the first woman. I'm not going to be the first probably, but I, I will go. And so that was something that kept with me so much that my parents actually sent me to space camp when I was a kid. There we are. So jealous. I went actually six times, twice in middle school, twice in high school, and then twice as an adult as part of a internship program called NASA Academy at Marshall Space Flight Center. They kicked it off in Huntsville with a weekend of space camp activities for adults. And I loved it. Love, love, love. I highly recommend. Well, I was going to say it it probably was a little awkward being the only adult with a bunch of 12-year-olds there, but I would totally do that myself. Still, am I still go to space camp? You say that, but there is a parent-child one, so I'm actually really excited for my my kids get old enough. (laughs) I can go with that. I have an excuse. (laughs) There was an adult in the shuttle in in the space camp. Yeah, yeah, there was. There we go. Like, that's required. That's uh, that's my favorite film ever for Joaquin Phoenix, like the best movie he ever made. <laughs> that was my inspiration behind space. Totally. Space Camp. <laughs> yeah. So you've written a book. I have to admit, I haven't read it yet, but we've got it on order. Tell us about it. I'm really excited about this book. So I wanted to know how to prepare myself for space flight. And I never really had the big dream of being, being a government astronaut. I... I actually am not qualified to be a government astronaut. I'm too short, at least here in the States. It's different requirements for ESA and JAXA, et cetera. But here in the States, I'm one inch too short to apply to be an astronaut. So I'm like, okay, I can go be a private astronaut. That's a thing now, right? We are seeing so many private individuals flying suborbital and even now with orbital space flight with SpaceX, and that's only going to continue. So my thought was, how can we as individuals best prepare if we're not going to be government astronauts? How can we go ahead and prepare ourselves now, whether it is next year or whether it is at the end of our lifetimes? You know, William Shatner was 90, you know, or 80, you know, I'm mixing it up. Wally Funk was was 80. And and, then I need to go look up the dates again. I've forgotten. But in any case, it's never too late as long as you are alive to think about that dream of space flight. So I wanted to know what are those surprises? 
So I reached out to some astronauts that I know and got introduced to other ones about asking them what surprised them about their space flight and got some interesting answers that I did not expect. Like there's some things that we all know about space, right? It's you're in free fall in, in orbit. So you are weightless. You, you float around, right? But that still surprises astronauts because there's no true way to prepare for that. Underwater preparation is like, okay, it's pretty good. When you're doing those parabolic flights, which I've done, you can climb and dive. When you're diving, you are in free fall for about 25 seconds. And that's pretty good prep, but it's not the same thing as actually being up there. So that surprises people in multiple ways, not just being sick, but also like the orientation of things, getting used to true 3D orientation, losing things. I mean, all kinds of ways. The view from the space station or from a shuttle or wherever, that view of Earth. I mean, there is that quote that we go into space. I think it was actually an Apollo quote. We go to the moon and we learned about Earth. And that's exactly how astronauts seem to feel. We go into space to learn about Earth, right? That view, there's no way to replicate it. And so that really struck a lot of astronauts in so many different ways. And then there's some other things that I would never have thought of that surprised astronauts. So then I reached out to people who actually have tickets not people like you and me, maybe that, that want to go, but people who actually have the money down or in some way are sponsored to go to space. And I wanted to know how they were preparing and got some really great insights from pioneers, some people who actually have already flown since my book has been published. So four people that I interviewed who were future flyers have already now gone, which is really exciting. Last year has been such an amazing time to see people flying to space who are private individuals. And it's only continuing this year. And so it really gives me hope that people like me and you can also fly. Maybe people in your audience will be listening to this and fly to space. So I sure hope so. So I don't Lynn's know. hoping because if... he's way too tall. Actually, what I was going to say <laughs> is that I don't know if you know, but Chad has already been training for becoming an astronaut. And it's well documented on Saturday Night Live. Pete Davidson actually played Chad as he was preparing. <laughs> To be an astronaut. Not sure if you saw that episode or not, Laura. No, I didn't. I'm going to have to look this up. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, not, I'm not incredibly thrilled with the training that Chad received to go to space. So if you're going to recommend to someone like us, what do we need to do to prepare Chad actually to go to space? What can we do to help him these days? Well, that is great. So you can pick up the book for one thing. I also started an <laughs> online community. I love a Nice plug. That's awesome. That was awesome. Nice. The book is called Becoming Offworldly, and then the community is becomingoffworldly.com. I mean, we are working together. We're running a workshop right now on how to prepare yourself mentally and emotionally, because you often think about it physically, right? The things like scuba diving and mountain climbing and skydiving and all these adventure sports, but it's also very mental, very emotional. And you have to work through some of that psychology. Just to live a yourself. day in the life of Chad, and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's, there's normal things too. There's like, you know, just a, a good exercise and diet routine, like things that you and I should be doing already, um, things like that. And, and small practices like meditation or journaling or ways that you can um, help focus in the moment, like things that you and I can do right here on earth that are very achievable that you don't have to go climb a mountain to go do. You know, I'm not sure if you you heard the episode that we had Nicole Stott on, but one of the things that I took away from her experiences on the ISS was the unbelievable amount of 
documentation and scheduling that an astronaut does. Like that was unbelievable. I think to all three of us. That is something that is actually on my mind right now as I'm running this workshop. So that is something that the Axiom One crew that just went to ISS for two weeks that they complained about. Some astronauts who've gone up said they get so much schedule pressure that they can't enjoy the experience. And so it's one thing then to understand human limitations. We are going to feel sick probably for the first like day. Not everyone does, but the majority of astronauts do feel sick at least for a day or two. And then we need to adjust our schedule both for the feelings of unwellness, space sickness, as well as just the unfamiliarity of moving in space, of having to figure out how to move your body. Like I said earlier, I've gone to those parabolic flight campaigns where you are diving and for each dive, you're 25 seconds of microgravity. And that is a completely different way of moving. It's not like swimming. It's not like skydiving. I was like a ping pong ball. I was really uncontrolled, at least with my first flight, not knowing how to move my body wow. in free fall. And that is something you need to get used to. And I didn't even get a chance to get used to it. <laughs> and so that is something that everybody who goes up needs to figure out how to move, how to work their bodies, how to move muscles in a different way. You get calluses on the top of your feet instead of on the bottom of your feet because you're handing, you know, the the foot rails. That's how you're going to hang on to the to the walls or ceilings. There is no such thing as a wall or ceiling. It's all the same. And then also the idea of like the ways that things move around. It's just you have to be scheduling everything to have everything just right and secure things this way. And so yeah. Everything takes a long time. And I actually interviewed the CEO of, of a company called Space Adventures, which actually has worked together with uh, the Russian Space Agency in the past, no longer. But in the past, they've arranged private astronaut missions through the Russian Space Agency to the International Space Station. And they talk about how that is one major part of what they do to prepare is make sure that astronauts are not overscheduling themselves, that they know what they're doing, that they have a realistic schedule and they give themselves that grace, that, you know, patience, because it's going to take a lot of patience. I, I bet. I was going to say, I think in terms of experiencing the scheduled nature of an astronaut, you just need to be a parent with what, three, four, five kids? <laughs> hey, yeah, I have four right now. <laughs> oh, wow. So this could be and a walk in the park patience, yes. um, Not to say you have to be a parent to be an astronaut. No, but there's a different type of learning experience when it comes to being a parent, I'm sure. Are, are you gentlemen parents as well? Indeed. Yes. Three three kids here and, and that scheduled nature, we live by that for sure. <laughs> yeah, we're all, we're all parents here. So we've all experienced the, the scheduling, the scheduling and the chaos. It's a nice way to say we've we've experienced the astronaut's life. Surviving. <laughs> Barely sure. surviving, but surviving. <laughs> you know, I also understand, Laura, that you're both a physicist and in that category, a planetary scientist. Like that one really intrigued me when I, I dug deeper into your background. What does a planetary scientist do? So think of it as somebody who studies a planet, right? And Earth is a planet. So there are people who study Earth as a planetary system. But for me, and I'm going to use a broad definition of planet, I studied the moon. 
And most planetary scientists I know actually consider moons to be planets or if you prefer planetary bodies. And in fact, we have a very broad definition of planet where Pluto indeed is a planet as well as Eros and some of those other dwarf planets. Um, so that's what we study. We study planetary bodies and the formation of planetary systems. And you know, for me in my graduate studies, it was how our planets formed that process of coalescing together the materials in a solar system and a stellar system to come together to form planetary bodies and, and how they move and position themselves in orbits around the star. And, and for me specifically, I was looking at fake moon dirt and fake Mars dirt to understand how we can interact with the surfaces. So it's kind of dual nature. It was like the pure science of understanding how it was formed. And then the practical application of how are we going to work with this dust when we go back to the moon or when we go to Mars or when we go to asteroids? Because this stuff is <laughs> really tricky to work with. It's different for each planetary body. For me, I mostly study the moon and that stuff is sharp and it is horrible to breathe in if you're going to go as a person. <laughs> you know, it's going to clog up your machinery. It's going to cover your solar panels or, you know, whatever you choose to use. It's going to cover all the equipment. It's going to get into your seals. I mean, that stuff's hard to work with. So Planetary scientists study all kinds of things about planets and planetary systems, you know, the ways that we can search for life out there, for example, that's one branch of astrobiology, we call it. And I love that. I didn't work in it, but I absolutely love that. The looking at to see how we can compare planets, comparative planetology, it's called, so we can figure out what worked with Earth and how, how did Earth get life and then figure it out for other planets not just here in our solar system, but there are now over 5,000 confirmed exoplanets out there. Exoplanets being planets outside of our solar system, which is amazing. So we're getting a much more look at how diverse planets and planetary systems are and trying to figure out if any of them have life, if any of them are like Earth. And that was actually one of the first things I worked on when I was a um, just a near undergraduate between my freshman and sophomore year. I was 19 years old. My very first astronomy research was actually looking for stars out there like our own sun. And the goal of that project was to not only identify another star that was like our own sun, but also to identify star systems, planetary systems that are like our own. Because our solar system is looking to be somewhat unusual, but there's got to be others out there that are like ours. Or if not, why not? Why is ours special? So long way of saying planetary scientists look at all these different aspects of what a what makes a planet. One thing that's really cool is like when we go to a place that we know is out there, but we don't know much about it, like Pluto, for example, and then we do a flyby of Pluto. And oh my gosh, it's so incredible. There's like cryovolcanism, the ice volcanoes. Like there's just so many cool things that we can learn just by go peering closer and understanding well, the little details of what a planet can offer. Cryovolcanoes sounds super interesting. And it almost sounds Canadian. <laughs> Maybe they're cryovolcanoes in Canada. We spend some planetary scientists in Canada. But it's actually, there are a lot of planetary scientists in Canada. It's funny that you mentioned the moon, moon earth or moon, moon dust being sharp and sticky. Cause I remember we had Dan on our podcast talking Dan about, Klops. yeah, yeah. They didn't fully expect that the moon dust would stick to everything the way it does. 
when we first went with Apollo, and this was before me, you know, I'm I'm a millennial, so this was before my time. But my understanding is that they had no clue yep. how the dust on the lunar surface would be. They thought maybe it was fluffy and they'd sink into it. So now that we know that they don't do that, we know that it it is definitely something to watch out for, though. So as we prepare to go back to the lunar surface with humans, we are working to figure out how best to not only mitigate against harmful uses of, of lunar dust, like getting it into our lungs, but also try to figure out how to use it for the benefits. Like I worked for three months at Kennedy Space Center in a group called Swamp Works, ah, cool. where they are figuring out how to use, it's called in situ resource utilization, ISRU. How do we use this? dirt and dust for our benefit, you know, creating things with it, creating the infrastructure we need, like roads and landing pads, but also things like propellant and and separating out the constituents to create water for, you know, all sorts of uses. Wait, wait, wait. Snowball fight or moon dust fight? Yeah, we could totally do that, right? And though there's not much water, so maybe you could clump it together with something else. (laughs) Whatever works, but yeah. Let's get on up on uh, Clinton. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Yeah, it's business as usual around here. Everyone gangs up on me. <laughs> well, we had to switch it from that Chad focus earlier. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, we can't let people in too far on on your efforts, Chad. <laughs> so, yeah, with, you know, being a, a physicist, you know, I think you probably view the world through a different lens, you know, and we, than many of the, the scientists that focus exclusively here on Earth, like... As a physicist, when you look out into space and you think about things more in terms of quantum physics, like what's the most exciting thing that you see being studied in space today? Oh my gosh, that is so hard to answer. So for me, space is extremely broad. I take a very broad look where space is like very practical in some of the things that we take for granted, like GPS, but also very futuristic, like interstellar uh, generational starships and (laughs) that kind of thing where we can really use science fiction as inspiration for what we can go do. So what's the most important I couldn't begin to tell you because I feel like we're just tapping the potential now. We've been using space now for six decades and we've only just begun. One thing that's really beginning to change is that space is becoming more commercialized and more accessible to people around the world. So Historically, it has been limited to government agencies and only a few government agencies at that, whereas now we're seeing a lot more companies being formed and a lot more individuals of all kinds of disciplines being involved and a lot more governments either creating their own space agencies or in some other way getting involved in space. So I think actually that might be the most important part, believe it or not, is diplomacy. That's one thing that was talked about a lot with the International Space Station is that its greatest achievement wasn't the science, it wasn't the engineering, it was the diplomacy, which now we see is strained at the moment with um, current relations with Russia, but it's still amazing that we spent so many years working together internationally, you know, adversarial countries and partners as well, working together in space. And right now we see a bit of a deterioration of that, but that's not to say we can't come back together again as more of a global outlook as we look forward, especially when it comes to things like Mars and beyond, because it's so complex and so expensive that we're going to need to work together. 
So I think my answer is sort of a cop out though, but it's very important. We need to learn how to work <laughs> together internationally. I'm a fan of Star Trek. And so the United Federation of Planets has always been something that inspired me. And while human nature will not change, I do believe that we're going to need to come together as a planet to work together as we move out. No, it's a great perspective. And, you know, I think these things are cyclical, you know, as, as countries come together, work together, you know, there's that friction and then everybody tries to do it on their own and they figure out that it's way harder to do it on their own and they come back together. But, you know, it's, I think that's human nature in many respects, but kind of sidebar, you've been watching Star Trek New Worlds. Yeah. Strange New Worlds. It's been fantastic. That might be one of my favorite new series. I mean, Patty Orville right now are doing fantastic work. I'm loving it. If anyone hasn't seen that new Star Trek, I actually purchased uh, Paramount Plus just to watch it. Agreed. I was going to ask if that was the new one on Paramount Plus. Yep. So yep. I keep finding new shows that are going there that I want to do. So maybe maybe this pushes me over. You should check it out, Chad. It's like the classic plus the next generation kind of mixed together into this new one. It's it's really good. Yeah, I grew up on Next Generation and Voyager and Deep Space Nine. Those are the ones I grew up with. And, and this one reminds me a lot of those ones. And, and I, I yeah. highly encourage, I'm a big sci-fi fan, both with movies and books. And so um, I'll, I'll get hooked on any sci-fi. Definitely going to have to check it out. I, I haven't watched yet either. Clint's not a huge Star Trek guy. He's more of a Star Wars guy. Is that, is that Do correct? Do you know me at all? Sorry, I guess not. <laughs> oh my God. Like... <laughs> I watched Trouble with Cribbles like a million times. Like I, I'm a Star Trek fan, next generation fan. Wow, Although I feel like you don't even Star know Trek me, Andrew. Fan, the That's original true. is is very Star Trek like, and it just came out with its third season, and it's been fantastic so far. Oh, sorry, which one? The Orville. Oh, I haven't seen that. That's another one to watch. Really good. I've been, you know, meaning to ask you about Laura. You know, with your focus on the moon, are you a fan of the? Apple series for all mankind? You know, I've only seen a little bit of it. I keep hearing really good things. And so I know I need to catch up with it. So I need to, I need to catch up because it, it definitely has promise for those who aren't familiar. It's like an alternate history. And I, I like the idea of women being involved much more. Um, like I, I wish that had been true of our actual history, but in any case, it's curious to see how this alternate history is portraying women in the early space age. Oh yeah. It's a totally different track. They do a great job on portraying women. Like I, I really like how they've made strong statements for, for women, for race, like all across the board. They've done a great job. You know, and one of them too, that I think, unfortunately, they made an extremely accurate representation was the astronaut from Oklahoma, Gordo, wrapping (laughs) himself in duct tape to save the world on the moon. Absolutely. (laughs) Not entirely realistic, but made for good entertainment. Oh, for sure. Oklahoma thing, right, Clint? Exactly. (laughs) Duct tape in space. Pretty Canadian too. We we like our duct tape. (laughs) Fixes everything. I think that's an engineering thing in general. <laughs> yeah, I think you nailed it. There we go. So in addition, Laura, you've I think you've written two books, not just the most recent one, right? Right. So Rise of the Space Age Millennials is currently going through a rewrite because at the time I was doing the interviews, millennials were like 18 to mid 30s. And now we've got Gen Z and Gen Z is like impressing the heck out of me right now. (laughs) So I actually did a few interviews with some people who were um, 
the older Generation Z here, I'm going to be incorporating them in. And the book is all about that intergenerational change. When I wrote the book, when I conceived of it, millennials were in the news a lot of millennials are killing this. Millennials aren't doing that. Well, it's lots of negative stereotypes. I'm an elder millennial. And so I'm like, well, this doesn't ring true to me. I'm going to go explore these ideas, but I'm going to explore them in the context of space. So how do millennials feel about this or that? How do they work? How are the intergenerational thought processes? What can millennials learn from older generations, et cetera? And also looking ahead of like, what did millennials want to accomplish in space. And so I wanted to capture all of that. I did over a hundred interviews, lots and lots of material there. So of course now I'm adding more (laughs) with Gen Z, but I think it's going to be a really cool addition because in a way, Generation Z is giving me even more hope for the future of what we can become and what we can accomplish in space. So Laura, if if someone were to go out and, and look for your books, I think you mentioned it earlier, What's the best way for them to to find your book and either download it, listen to the audio version, order a hard copy? What's the best way for them to find that? Yeah, it's on Amazon. You could also go to my company, astrolytical.com, and you can find them there, the autographed copies. I will be doing an audiobook, but we just established I have four kids, four young kids between the ages of four months and six years. So the house <laughs> is always busy. And, right. and so I haven't had much opportunity to have quiet time to actually record an audiobook. I actually attempted to do so and was interrupted. So of all of these days, I will do that. Just we, we record would reading to them. Exactly. I, I was going to say that the <laughs> three of us, you. we've read to kids for so long. If we were to do the audiobook version of your book for you, it would probably sound like we're reading it to our kids. Yeah. Yeah. The funny voices and all. Exactly. exactly. Well, <laughs> the funny voices come naturally, but, uh, but, I, but, <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, I'm looking forward to the audiobook version. Unfortunately, I live, and I think we all are starting to live in such a fast paced world that the audiobook version is starting to become the primary way that we consume this time of, of material. But I'm really looking forward to your book, looking forward to the rewrite, Generation Z being included. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today, Laura. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. That was great having Laura on. I'm so glad she was able to join. Chad, what what did you think of today? <laughs> it was awesome. Laura's great. I really like the elder millennial title the elder that she millennial. gave herself. Uh, elder yeah. millennial. That's a new <laughs> one, isn't it? I'm not sure what counts as an elder millennial, but... I don't know which is the younger of the three of us, but I think I'm just over the line where I'm just past elder millennial. I think I'm Gen X. I can't remember where the line is. Uh, It's a blurred line. I think for me, it's always, you know, do you eat avocado and toast or not? Uh, It's a pretty good indicator. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's that's the needle right there. Yeah. Um, We totally forgot to ask her about the Georgia Space Alliance. I feel like that's like George's answer to uh, the walking dead. Like we're going to hit eject and we're going to go to space and <laughs> walking dead's going to happen down there. Oh yeah. But, but we did hit on space camp. Like I'm super yes. jealous. Now we've yes. met a couple of people that have gone to space to camp, space camp and neither one of them were us. Uh, exactly. And there's an adult space camp. I mean, yeah. there's still hope for us at yeah. some point. That's just for folks. I want to relive the, the heydays of the eighties. Exactly. Which is okay. 
Is there a problem okay. with that? No, there's it's, not. Uh, <laughs> I'd, no. To- I'd totally take I'm my in. kids to space camp and then just dump them when I get there. The 80s channel is one of my favorites on Sirius XM. You have an 80s channel? Oh, yeah. 80s on 8. Wait, you listen to Sirius XM? Yeah. Huh. I didn't know that was even still around. Don't you guys drive a car? I'm serious. When you, <laughs> when you live in the Great White North and there's like miles between miles, you got to have Sirius huh. XM. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I just stream everything on Spotify. I had no idea Sirius was still around. Man, there is places where the cell phone drops out and okay. satellite takes over. It's okay. like we're plugging all these companies. I yeah, mean, they it's all, pretty nice. They all we need, we to, need to start getting them to yeah, pay sponsorship. For this. <laughs> Hello. Yeah. Oh, wow. And Paramount Plus, by the yeah. way, if you're listening. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Netflix. Seriously, Clint, I did mm-hmm. not know you were that much of a Star Trek fan. I always oh, yeah. And you as Star Wars. I've seen, well, okay. I am. I see the thing about Star Wars and Star Trek, everyone kind of views it as a binary choice. Like you're, you choose one. For or sure. I love other, both. But, I love both. Yeah. 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 But, but no, my youngest days, like I remember seeing Star Wars episode four, A New Hope. I think I was four, like watched it on, I think it was the first time it was ever played on live television. I remember watching it and I walked in right as the the stormtrooper bumped his head coming through. So I didn't, because, you know, back in those days, you couldn't stream it, you couldn't pause it. And I was watching yeah. it live and we were all glued to it. But in that... I, I might be off on my timelines here, but a very similar time back in those days, we still had drive-in theaters. And my uncle and aunt, my cousins, we all went out to the drive-in in Weatherford, Oklahoma, and we watched Star Trek Episode Two: Wrath of Khan. Like, oh, and, epic. Oh, and that was a great one. And and when they... <laughs> I don't want to ruin it for anyone, but when they put this thing <laughs> out of the guy's ear... Like, I just, I lost it, man. I couldn't handle it. I, I was fidgeting. I was twitching. But I was sitting on the back of the pickup under the camper watching this and absolutely lost it. But it made an impact. But then where I really became a fan was watching Next Generation. You know, I yeah. watched all of the the original Star Trek series on reruns. I think TBS. Hard to yeah. remember these days. But then absolutely every episode ever made of Next Generation but a lot of the newer ones, I never really got past got Next Generation. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's fair. That's a lot of people. I have a whole new respect for you, Clint. <laughs> or respect at all. I'll, I'll go for that <laughs> yeah, one. There we go. <laughs> oh, yeah, man. I, yeah, but I'm I'm really pumped about Apple Plus with For All Mankind. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Season three just dropped. Can't wait to watch yeah. it. Um, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of that one. Yeah, highly recommend Strange New Worlds. It is really, really good. And Obi-Wan Kenobi's on my my list. I, I got to I watch, watch that. that. Yeah. It looks good. Yeah. Don't no yeah. spoilers. Come on. Yeah. I, yeah. I have I haven't seen it. I'm looking forward to watching Obi-Wan. I actually didn't hear such great things. I heard that it looked like they just tried to save a ton of money and mm. like cheaped out on the set and all that stuff. I don't know. Maybe eh. you told me that, Chad. Maybe I just didn't pay attention who told me. It's entertaining. I'll let our Canadian friend take it and we'll we'll have a separate review one day. Yeah, on another right. podcast. Do Canadians have any sci-fi series or movies? I mean, you did contribute Captain Kirk. I'll I'll give you that one. But I mean, that's the original, right? Right. But other than that, are there any Canadian sci-fi series? Well, it depends on what you call Canadian because <laughs> <laughs> Strange New Worlds is filmed in Canada. Okay. All the new Star Treks are done in Canada. All Mankind is done in Canada. What? It's recorded. Are you here. serious? Yeah. Do we have a fact checker on that one? Oh, <laughs> this is this is a problem. 
for next episode of Space and 60, we'll do some fact checking. Yeah, we'll bring in a fact checker. We'll let Andrew talk and then eh, buzz. Fact check. <laughs> Love it. Oh, but yeah, I, I uh, bringing it back to Laura. Sorry, we, we all got a little distracted there. Laura was a great, great guest. guest on the show today. Can't wait to have a dozen more just like her back on the show. So we'll see you next time on Space next time. and 60. Next time. <laughs> next time on Space and 60. Thanks, everyone. Take care. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Space and 60. Stay tuned as we explore new journeys into space with our upcoming guests and talk about the evolution of the industry. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you don't miss any new episodes. And we would love your input and feedback. So send us your comments and questions, and we'll try to feature them in a future podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode of Space and 60, where new space speaks. Space and 60.